0: Many times when choosing a payroll service, you have to choose between a new startup with a great app or an established company whose tech may feel behind the times. With OnPay, you get the best of both worlds, a great app from an established company that's been providing payroll services for over 30 years in all 50 states. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, OnPay, later in the episode. This would make sense, right? If if a billion dollars that they made of revenue all came from fraudulent applications, they probably need to give that billion dollars back.
1: Wampley did 1.4 million loans, totaling more than 20 billion. And the total was about 800 billion. So they did quite a good chunk. Blue Acorn did 14 billion in loans.
0: And we talked about Blue Acorn before because they were powering a couple of the other services and they came out of nowhere in one year. They didn't even exist prior to PPB. Basically, April of that year, they started as a company. It's bananas.
1: So the question is who's to blame here? Today is Sunday, November 28th. This is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Happy weekend after Thanksgiving to you, David. Yes.
0: Good, relaxing weekend.
1: Yeah, it was great. We just stayed here. Just stayed in paradise in Scottsdale and went out to a restaurant, didn't even cook. I drove to Phoenix. The weather was incredible this weekend.
0: Yeah, it was nice. Did a lot of driving. That's the only problem. Just a lot, When you take a trip to Phoenix, you're just doing lots of driving.
1: We drove a lot yesterday to go get my son's second COVID shot. So he's fully vaxxed now. That was the last thing we were really waiting for as a family was that's,
0: that. So yeah. That's it. No Christmas gifts. Like you got your second shot. Good to go.
1: <laughs> well, he, he got a new iPad and I, I didn't even wait until Christmas because he's the only kid in his generation so far. Like we're the first of our generation to have kids. So he's like the only grandchild. He's got like a bunch of uncles and aunts and grandparents and he gets spoiled, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I
0: hear you there. We got lots of things to be thankful for this week, right? We get lots and lots and lots of listener feedback.
1: Yes, we got listener messages, uh, some on our, our CPA evolution topic, some on uh, cloud versus desktop. So we could start there. On cloud versus desktop?
0: Or just yeah. in our feedback? Well, in general?
1: Just, just with the listener mail. But the first me- message is an email I got from Peg who said, Little behind on listening. I use both QuickBooks online and desktop. Feel like you guys are quite anti desktop. Meanwhile, we are using it not because we are too lazy to learn new things, although definitely an old dog using desktop for 20 plus years, but because online sucks for extensive inventory. Got to give people a break for the things QBO does not handle. So what say you, David? So, yeah,
0: I'm a little anti-desktop. It's very hard to do two things well. So if you think about even Intuit themselves... There was a while, and two, it was trying to build one magic API for QuickBooks Desktop and QuickBooks Online. And there was a time when they kind of put 50% of the resources into QuickBooks Desktop. And QuickBooks Online just kind of sucked. And until they put 90% of the resources into QuickBooks Online, it never really took off. But I've watched the industry, like every third-party developer, they're building their app, they're working very, very hard to build their app. And things like QuickBooks Desktop are a distraction. There's, oh, there's too many desktops users and they get pressure to build something. And building integration for QuickBooks desktop is harder. It's harder to do tech support. It costs more. It never really works great. It really holds back greatness from a lot of companies because you get distracted by QuickBooks desktop. And my argument is same for firms as well, right? I think it holds back firms.
1: Your argument is that it holds back the whole profession, the whole industry, because it distracts our focus and our resources. Exactly. From online. So, including Intuit's. I
0: think in, right. it even distracts Intuit's resources and focus still.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm just kind of surprised that the inventory still isn't up to desktop levels. Like, why is that the case when they know that inventory is the reason most people can't switch?
0: But there's plenty of third party inventory apps that work amazing with QuickBooks Online.
1: Right. But when you're trying to get people to k- switch from a single solution that solves all their problems, and then you tell them, okay, you can go online, but you have to choose now. At least two apps to work together and configure those. Like that's not ideal. But so, I mean, people if you have been want,
0: running their payroll separately from QuickBooks for millions, and millions, and millions of businesses. Run their payroll separate from QuickBooks.
1: I don't know. Maybe it's easier to integrate payroll and the GL versus inventory in the GL. There's just a whole lot more complex stuff going on with inventory costing. So that's why it's not as easy to yeah. have two separate systems for it.
0: But you're right. Like, why isn't inventory up to snuff? And yeah, this goes for zero as well, right? Zero just purchased an inventory product well, to well, hopefully bring that up to snuff.
1: Yeah, zero has a plan, it sounds like, to fix inventory in online, but I don't see Intuit spending a lot of money and resources on building it into advanced. They're doing all this other stuff. Maybe they just decided that the two-app solution is the way it's got to be. If you have a lot of complex inventory, you just do it in a separate system. I'm kind of playing devil's no, no, advocate no. here. I still think that you're better off pairing online QuickBooks with a third party inventory solution versus sticking on desktop.
0: But but I could see how like on an individual basis, you're going to have some client that they're already on desktop. The effort to move to an ERP system or Krupus Online Advance and add in an inventory system, all of that is it's a hard call to make. It's a tough call. Because sell. you have a system that's working just fine in a way. Yeah. So so I get this on an individual client basis. I could see where you could make a decision for that client to be on QuickBooks desktop. But overall, the industry, I think it holds everybody back.
1: So Peg and I went back a little bit and forth uh, via email on this. She said that they are actually uh, moving off of desktop. I'll read her email. She said, fine, make fun of the old people. Someday this will happen to you. Meanwhile, we are moving off desktop to something that handles inventory great, but financial stuff horribly. So if you ever hear of one that does both well, but does not cost as much as NetSuite, that would be a great podcast. And the solution that they're moving to is called Expandable, which is industry specific for medical devices. I never heard of that one before.
0: So it's, a me- it's, it's inventory controls just for medical devices. Sounds like it. And, and I think as, as you think about businesses becoming omnichannel, you have a warehouse and you have a point of sale, like a lot of that inventory is gonna live in that other omni-channel app, right? And really you may only need a journal entry back to QuickBooks. Now manufacturing inventory is different, but in those cases, even then, most people are using an app like MySis or something to do manufacturing inventory, right? You're not not really tracking all that detail inside of QuickBooks. So I don't know, I think it's just time as an industry to move on. And I've been hearing rumblings at some of the top firms this year, this is the year they're starting to implement like this. How would you describe the verbiage here? Uh, identifying their ideal client going forward into the future. Yes. And for a lot of these top firms, one of the checkboxes is they're on cloud. So you might start seeing some of the big firms over the next year to 18 months start letting go of clients that won't move to the cloud and fit mm-hmm. in their new business models. But who knows? You know, that talk is cheap because I think the you know, there are a lot more billable hours than those desktop clients.
1: We also got feedback on our cpa evolution story from last week this is from eric he said i think that i have an explanation as to why fewer young people want to be a cpa my theory is that they were subconsciously scarred as children by the feed the pig campaign in the early 2000s what is I, can't, this? I can't describe it just look at one of the commercials i watched the commercial and it is one of the most bizarre things i've ever seen in my life Maybe there are folks out there who remember this. I I was not aware of this campaign. It was put on by the AI CPA, and it's this guy chasing a man in a pig costume, trying to, I guess, deposit money into him. He's like a piggy bank. He has like a slot in his head. And he's like chasing him all over town trying to put money in there. And it had something to do with personal finances and how CPAs can help. I, I honestly I didn't understand what the commercial was supposed to be trying to communicate. Oh, wow. There's I, a whole
0: site, feedthepig.org. The AICPA created documents to teach you as a firm owner how to market and link to this. You should post this in your social media and view your newsletter emails Yeah, and your it, company internet. The pig guy is kind of creepy. He's like wearing and a And you suit, could even put a, a piggy bank on your desk with a sign that says, Ask me about Benjamin. Wow. Jeez, I, I didn't even know this existed.
1: I guess there was some pushback against this campaign because it was a little bizarre. And there's a whole AICPA response. They dug in and they said it's a great campaign in a Journal of Accountancy article or editorial in 2007. Eric continues. He says, I'm joking partly, but it is a serious sign that the people leading our profession don't have a clue and they haven't had a clue for a long time. Also, if you follow the accounting subreddit, it's basically a giant negative Yelp tirade on CPA life. If I was leading the AI CPA, I would be focusing on solving the issues cited by our new talent pool on Reddit instead of focusing on creepy pig mascots, selling insurance, and fake new credentials like CGMA. Anyway, keep up the great work, Eric. For those who do want some insight into the minds of younger CPAs, check out r slash accounting on Reddit. It is amazing. There are some threads about what it's like, working in a big four firm the the you get you get a lot of the real honest truth i think about how just awful it can be and why would people want to become accountants when you're a student and you're going on reddit and that's what you read about accounting
0: and this is the problem right so the AICPA is talking to their members who would be older People, probably that own firms. Yeah. And it gives them specific instructions like this. Organize a lunch seminar on the subject of saving, targeting the 24 to 35-year-olds at your workplace. So you're a firm owner. You're trying to get credibility with your younger staff. And you're going to come out and be like, feed the big. I just it, can't, I'm just trying to imagine how this did not go down well. But it's still
1: up there, right?
0: No, this... the, the website forwards to a new site so uh, called 360financialliteracy.org. It's a free public service brought to you by the nation's CPAs.
1: So I continued with Eric on this thread. I asked him what he thinks about my idea to make accounting education more practical versus theoretical. And he said, the best way I can describe how the old system worked well, if you were at a good office, is as follows. There was an implied agreement with new staff and CPA firms. Staff would work very hard for relatively low pay for a couple of years. In exchange, you would be subject to a very steep learning curve, see a variety of projects, and learn the right way to do most aspects of accounting. After a couple of years, you were making more, or at least equal to what you would have made, taking an entry-level position in private practice, and you would have much more knowledge. As time progressed, hours would get less demanding and pay increased significantly. I was fortunate to work at an office that did this, but I saw many examples of firms that made that promise, but never delivered on managing their staff that way. Example. 4.0 4.0 GPA big four staff does bank recs for two years. Really good small firm staff can't get signed enough audit hours to get their test credential. We would sit in scheduling meetings and discuss staff and how to get them the experience on a new section of the balance sheet or get them involved in planning. So we were developing future senior auditors and outside of the meeting meeting, you are training on the job, which takes extra time. Once management stops honoring that agreement, it becomes an every person for themselves situation where everyone's just making short-term decisions to get through very tough projects, No one is taking the extra time to manage the development of younger staff in an on-the-job training model. Thus, you have people losing their minds on Reddit or Glassdoor and putting the whole CPA path down. And yeah, if I start on the university system, this email will go way too long. That needs complete reorganization, but it won't happen. One idea, work internship for college credit. That will never happen because it cuts the professors out of the industry. I love hearing from our listeners on this topic and this implicit bargain between staff and firms makes a lot of sense to me that this used to be honored and now it's not as much anymore. We, we've seen this in the whole world of work. It used to be people went to work for companies and they stayed there for quite a long time. I mean, some people never left and would stay at their same firm for decades until they retired. The, tenure, the average tenure of an employee became shorter and shorter and shorter over time until now we're almost mercenaries. I can go work someplace new every year or two, and people don't even bat an eye anymore if I'm bringing enough value. But that also changes the incentive on the firm side, because why would they train you now if they're going to train you for two years and then you leave? Something has to change here on how we train accountants. The universities aren't training accountants to be accountants. The firms have always been doing that. The universities have just been giving them the theoretical background. We need to find a way to train accountants that doesn't rely on the firms doing it. So that's why we need, you know, maybe we need like one of these coding boot camps, but for accounting, where you go in for six months to a year, all you do is study the how to do it of accounting. Well, you
0: know what I mean, I'm talking they have about? That's for bookkeepers, right? There, there's a lot of these smaller bookkeeping schools that are out there, and they teach them to do bookkeeping, they teach them bookkeeping, they teach them even how to like start their own bookkeeping practice. And it's all real, real world. It starts with pretty much kind of an accounting 101, but it's like starts with using QuickBooks on like day one. Right.
1: right. And these, these don't are, really you
0: know, exist for the for accountants. It's, it's really still professor-driven book theory.
1: Exactly. And then learning on the job in a bigger firm or a mid-sized firm.
0: This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Center. Often when finance and accounting teams are asked what are some of the biggest challenges they face, You'll hear finding time for analysis and optimization, closing the books on time, and working more efficiently. One of the best ways to overcome those challenges is to lean on technology. Center is next-generation expense management software that makes it easy to automate expense tracking and save finance and accounting teams a huge amount of time. Center has the power and flexibility to adapt to your client's way of accounting for expenses. Think unlimited custom fields, projects, client names, classes, locations, and GL integrations like QuickBooks Online, Sage Intact, NetSuite, eliminating those Excel pivot table hacks or repeated hours of manual coding. With Center, employees can easily submit expenses and receipts in real time and say goodbye to the monthly expense report. You'll see what has been purchased with Center as it happens, including unsubmitted expenses. You can even create workflows and rules to ensure compliance with company expense policies. To learn more about how Center can help you add more value to your clients, head over to Center. That is is forward slash C-E-N-T-E-R. Center expense management, one solution start to finish.
1: I think we got one more bit of listener feedback. You have that one, right, David?
0: Yeah. So Jennifer Johnson, who she is a professor, an accounting educator in Dallas, Texas, but I'm always confused. Is it the
1: University of Houston at Dallas? She's a professor at the University of Texas at Dallas where she teaches accounting information systems courses and related software courses, cost accounting and seminars in Excel and QuickBooks. And Jennifer had us do a live show for her class once a couple of years ago.
0: We ruined a whole classroom of accountants for the future. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so what did Jennifer have to say?
0: So she, this is a tweet. So she just responded right away after we released the episode. And she said, "Hey, hi, I have lots of thoughts on your segment about this CPA exam, but David Leary mentioned the need for real world experience. And then she goes on to say, you need work experience one year under a CPA to get your actual CPA license. While not all experience is equal, it must be quote unquote relevant, which I just responded like that's good to know. But you said she also sent an email with more
1: details. She did specifically on this experience, work experience thing. Well, it depends on the state, but you typically need a year of experience to get your CPA, which is yet another barrier to getting your CPA, because what if you can't go work for a CPA? For whatever reason, or you don't want to change jobs just so that you have a CPA supervising you. But again, it's like the fifth year where it can be very loosey-goosey depending on the state. I kid you not, David, when I had my cloud bookkeeping firm, Cloud Sourced Accounting, my business partner, Maria, was getting her CPA in Illinois at the time. She passed her exams and because of the way Illinois' rules worked, I wasn't a CPA at the time, but she was able to actually use her work experience as a partner in our bookkeeping firm to qualify for work experience in well, Illinois. Good. And I signed off on her <laughs> I signed off on it because it was just in the space of accounting. They were very broad. You just had to be working in accounting somehow. So like I don't I don't actually see like I don't know. Maybe that we'll was tied back but. to the CPA license itself. Yeah. It, so anyway, the whole point is like, we need more practical work experience. And just saying like, you need a year of work experience working for a CPA, some, you know, and it's quote unquote relevant. I mean,
0: we need actually. you in theory, you could be in the mailroom and you're working yeah, for a well, CPA firm, but that should, you'll probably qualify as your one year if you turn in the paperwork.
1: Or the more common situation is you're a 4.0 accounting student goes to work for the big four and they put you on auditing cash for a year and that's your work experience. Did that really- <laughs> teach you how to be a CPA? Yeah. No. Makes sense. Makes sense. I mean, yeah, on that one little thing, right? Yeah. But uh, Jennifer also said that she has thought about this idea of creating a, like, accounting services firm inside of a university before. But she's always been You kind of talked about this. Yeah. Well, I think it would be brilliant if, like, why not? If you want to give people experience, create a firm a services firm inside of your university program so that people can actually work in it and get credit for it. Learning how to do accounting for maybe other student organizations at the university or the fraternities and sororities or like you could, there's a ton of businesses inside of a university or the entrepreneur club, right? If they're starting businesses, why can't you as the accounting students help them and formalize it in some way and get credit for it? One of the challenges is the logistics of the state board and licensure. Jennifer says, the school cannot be a CPA firm, and the state board rules get very particular about what services you can provide and the need to be licensed to provide those services. So honestly, no one in my school was willing to take the risk. Of course, this is the problem. In academia, nobody wants to take a risk. I think there's ways you could do it, though. I mean, you don't have to be a CPA firm to provide accounting services. Texas is a little stricter. You can't call yourselves accountants, but you could just use some other euphemism... (laughs) You could do bookkeeping for for the entrepreneur club or the startups that they're starting in the MBA program or whatever you they're doing. Convince
0: all the fraternities and sororities to outsource their internal treasury controls to you. You do yeah, you virtual, could You, could, audit.
1: you yeah. could do audits without calling them audits. You could practice, you know? I don't know. I really enjoyed all that feedback. Thank you all so much for sharing your thoughts. And if you want to share your thoughts with us, you can send me an email. I'm blake at blakeoliver.com. Or better yet, you can share your thoughts in a voice memo, record a voice memo on your phone and email that file to me. And David and I will listen and we will likely play it on the air. And just to tie back into this, I have two job
0: postings because, you know, they kind of pop up now in my feeds. One of them is it's on winebusiness.com. I'm not positive of where this position's at, but if I scroll down and I look at the knowledge and experience and skills, they require five years of experience and financial leadership position, preferably in the wine industry. They want a BA or BS in finance or accounting, MBA or CPA desired. It's not required, desired. And then they said they want you proficient in Microsoft Office, QuickBooks, Concur, and Dropbox. So they're very specific about the, their app stack, and they want you to have experience in that. And this is for a director of finance position. I have another position that you Wait, might want to take,
1: Blake. What industry is that? I'm just curious. Oh, wines. So wine. it's a wine director of finance position, and CPA is not required.
0: Not required, but th-
1: these specific apps are called out. QuickBooks, Concur... Microsoft Office, Dropbox.
0: And then there's another one that you might be interested in. It's uh, with Odell Breweries, which apparently is the 17th largest craft brewer in the United States. One of the benefits you get is a weekly beer allotment, which would be nice. Um, (laughs) They're hiring an assistant controller. And when you get into this, no requirement of CPA listed anywhere. They want experience with ERP software and excellent Microsoft Excel skill sets is required.
1: I feel like if you're a Microsoft Excel genius, that trumps everything. People will take that over any, like just show them your Excel skills or your ERP skills, although that's, that's hard, harder to show off. Odell Brewing Company, odellbrewing.com, you could be the assistant controller, did you say?
0: Assistant controller.
1: I might have to quit the podcast and just go work for a brewery, David. I think I would have a lot of fun. The manufacturing or the the inventory is really interesting for breweries because there's it's a manufacturing business, like and there's all these raw materials and the the way that you convert those raw materials into finished goods, it's very unique. And there's a lot of
0: you and also you have to balance like how much of how much of your production do you sell to a distributor to put in grocery stores and you only make like a nickel a can on those versus you sell it in house at your own tap room for six bucks a can and it's all profit. Right. And you have to balance yeah, yeah, this yeah. out.
1: Well, and then there's the merchandise and, and the there's like all the other stuff that you can monetize. Tours, special gift baskets. I was at all that fun stuff. A
0: brewery here in Tucson at Dragoon Brewery last Dragoon? weekend.
1: Oh I love that. I love Dragoon.
0: And some lady comes in and she's they were there and they left. She came back in and she's like, Yeah, my five year old just asked if he can do his birthday party here. I like that kid. <laughs> there's good times here. It's all science, right? You could have a science tour. Yeah, there's lots oh, yeah. to do. But the point is, nowhere does it say I mean we want you to be a CPA.
1: Right. Yeah. It's no longer the most desirable quality, and that's I wouldn't the be problem. surprised
0: if, the, because of the labor market, they start they start pulling down a bachelor's degree in accounting is required off of these job postings. Yeah, because they want real work. Yeah. They want real work experience.
1: Well, and what you see is a bachelors or equivalent. Yeah. yeah, so they can get like around. That. Yeah. Well, okay, uh, that's all for the listener feedback this week. Thank you, everyone. I give thanks to you, our listeners, for making this show possible. And it's not just me and David talking to each other, although we do enjoy that. We like hearing from our listeners. What is top of mind for you in the news this week, David? What, what In our time remaining, what are we going to talk about?
0: So there's another letter to the IRS. This time it's from the National Society of Accountants. Oh, yes. So they sent a letter to the IRS commissioner and leaders of the Congress's main tax committees asking the IRS to speed up refunds for 2019 and 2020 and communicate better.
1: And, Did they specifically uh, say how the IRS should possibly accomplish this because there's a bunch of people.
0: Uh, it gets into funding and more funding, blah, blah, blah. They don't have real it's, – it's, it's more of a bitch letter, but it's also – they draw a line in the sand. They pretty much say until the IRS can more efficiently communicate with taxpayers, the NSA, which is the National Society of Accountants, is asking the IRS to stop all automatic collection notices and actions of liens and levies at least for certain categories that have low compliance risk until the agency has completed its backlog of unopened, unprocessed mail, as yeah. well as provide taxpayers with targeted automatic relief from the underpayment of estimated tax penalties and late penalties for the 2020 tax year. So they're it's, they're not just complaining. They're like really trying to put a line in the sand of like, get your shit together, IRS.
1: And right. stop the machine of notices. Yeah. yeah. They did say... NSA strongly agrees with the commissioner that there is indeed a crisis occurring involving the IRS, taxpayers, and practitioners, much of which can be attributed to insufficient funding. So they do agree that the funding is too low, which is more than I could get out of the AICPA when I spoke to uh, spoke to them earlier this year. Oh, that's year, right. He where,
0: danced on the line. I remember that. Well, your, your it was review. just like,
1: yeah, that interview was bizarre because it was the AICPA's position, and I think it's still this, is... That they agree that the service levels are unacceptable, but they don't – well, they also agree – I think they also agree in principle that funding is too low, but they don't – none of these associations will say what the funding should be. Or and what we, the what the acceptable standards should be. Right. Like, okay, it's one thing to complain, but then give the IRS a, a goal, a target to hit. Like, how much better should they get? And what should the response times be? What should the mail backlog be? What should the phone call queue time be if two hours is not acceptable what is acceptable
0: and this is what's weird does the national society of accountants or the aicb actually have any
1: true arm twisting control over the irs i don't think anyone is reading any of this stuff <laughs> i don't think it has any impact the influence is just like non-existence it seems like I Anyway, irs news but i think it could bridge us into
0: app news so i don't know if you have other stuff to jump on
1: well yeah almost everything seems to bridge into app news these days
0: This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by OnPay. If you're wondering why OnPay is great, it's because it was built by payroll experts with over 30 years of payroll experience. They handle all the complicated stuff that other payroll providers don't, like agricultural payrolls, including Form 943, multi state payrolls, and employees with H 2A visas. Even while handling all the complicated stuff, OnPay remains an easy-to-use, full-service payroll and HR app that is the right fit for all of your clients, whether they have just one or 500 employees, It helps them stay organized, save time, and get compliant. OnPay has flexible and customizable integrations with QuickBooks and Xero. OnPay's partner program offers free payroll for your firm, discounts, and special bonuses for moving clients to OnPay for 2022. The program also offers a dedicated support team to offer white glove service to both you and your clients. To learn more about offering your clients the award winning OnPay payroll and HR, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash OnPay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash O N P A Y. OnPay, nobody takes better care of your clients.
1: I wanted to talk a little bit about this Amex fraud case. Amex tax debacle. Did you hear about this uh, story? Amex no, had to fire to a bunch of its salespeople. Here. I've completely missed this. There was a story in the Wall Street Journal last week, and maybe it didn't get quite the attention it deserves because of the the, the weekend. The, Amex does the good PR.
0: Weekend. You you get these articles squeezed in on the Thanksgiving <laughs> weekend when nobody's paying attention.
1: So the story is it's an in-depth investigation into Amex by the Wall Street Journal. The headline is, Amex pitched business customers a tax break that doesn't add up. Businesses were told they could deduct transaction fees while earning tax-free cash rewards. I thought this would be interesting for our listeners because it is a sales pitch that relies on a specific tax treatment of credit card rewards, basically a tax shelter. It seems everyone agrees this is not going to work. Amex was selling this to customers, pitching this to them, despite every advisor coming back and saying, guys, like we don't think this really works. So here's how the tax math was described in an Amex document viewed by the Wall Street Journal. Quote, a business owner would use Amex's wire services to send $10 million for a 1.77% fee or $177,000. Assuming the business owner would pay a 42% combined federal and state marginal income tax rate, the owner would deduct the fee for a 72% $4,340 reduction in taxes, lowering the transaction's net cost to $102,660. The business owner would also earn one point per dollar spent, or 10 million points. The owner could then transfer the points to a personal Amex Platinum Charles Schwab card at 1.25 cents per point, generating a cash reward of $125,000. Subtract the net transaction cost of $102,660 for a net gain of 22,340. So basically, you're using your Amex credit line to pay a bill, basically putting it on a credit card. So you're paying a credit card fee. You, the sender, are paying the fee to pay your vendor this way. You get to deduct that fee, so that lowers the cost of the transaction because you get a tax deduction. But it's still gonna cost you like 100 grand to send the $10 million. And what you're doing then is you're taking the points that you earn, on that business card, and you transfer them over to a personal card, and then you convert those points to cash. So you're getting money out of the business tax-free because, I should have probably said this at the beginning, credit card rewards are generally not taxed at the personal level by the IRS. The IRS has issued guidance saying that your credit card rewards are not taxable. But here's the catch. The catch is that's for miles, airline miles. If you convert those points to cash, the IRS is not saying you can do this. And pretty much the experts agree. All these Amex salespeople were apparently aggressively selling this strategy and they got caught. And a bunch of them got fired.
0: I've seen this at Emilio, right? Because with Emilio, you can pay your bills with a credit card. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons people do that is because they want the points. They want to fly first class on Delta or, you know, they want the American Express black card or whatever whatever the, the game is for that small business owner. But you can also pay bills with your personal credit card. I could pay all my bills in my personal Discover card, and that automatically connects into my Amazon, and I just use those points up on Amazon. And, it's, and then, it, But I've done the math on it because – and I look at it from a bookkeeping perspective. And this is where I think you as a, our listeners, you're going to have clients. You're not going to win this argument because for me personally, I do my own bookkeeping. But it's all said and done at the end of the year. Okay, I might get $300 in like credits from paying my bills for the year with my personal credit card. I'll have $300 on Amazon to spend on whatever I want. But every time I record this, I have to record double the amount of bookkeeping transactions because I have to record the spend. And then I have to record a journal entry to move that money back out to owner's withdrawal or owner's investment in the business, right? And so it's double the work from the accounting side. But as you, your clients are going to do this, and you're just going to have to do the work. There's, you're well, not going to be able to stop them.
1: I think the easiest way to do this is you just use expense management software, like File, a sponsor of our yep. show, or any of the Center other- Center card or- yeah, Center card, or another sponsor, right? And so you get the the business owner pays the bills on their personal card and then submits for reimbursement to the business and then gets reimbursed. Yep. The IRS doesn't really- I mean, technically, the guidance is only for miles, not necessarily for cash rewards. So it's not clear how that whole thing works. What definitely doesn't work is if you try to transfer the points from the business to the personal and convert those to cash, that's going to be a problem at this scale. It's, it's this whole fuzzy area right and it's just another example of the ways the tricks that we have to shift income and to get tax free income out of the business i mean it's kind of crazy like if you if you are running most of your bills on your personal credit card and then get reimbursed by the business you can generate a ridiculous amount of cash rewards like all your ad spend for instance going through your personal card and generating cash rewards miles all that stuff i mean if you're getting 1 2% back on all that it can add up i guess this is an example of you know the irs issued this guidance because they just want to simplify things for people. And then of course, somebody goes and takes advantage of it and potentially ruins it for everyone else. Now, hopefully this doesn't result in us now having to report credit card rewards. Yeah. I was just I was thinking returns, of this, right? just like on the tax return, like, there's a little uh, box,
0: the check mark that says I've touched Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. There'd be a check box right next to it that says I've redeemed air uh, credit <laughs> card points.
1: So uh, that was my Amex story. And I guess the fallout of that was Let's see how many people lost their jobs as a result. CFO reported on the workers finally getting fired.
0: Oh, so so just to make sure I'm following this correctly. So this is kind of like the Wells Fargo model where the management makes decisions and puts pressure on the salespeople. It gives them these guidelines. The salespeople just go out and start executing and the salespeople lose their jobs. There's yeah. some, some manager somewhere that said, do whatever you have to do to maximize the Amex usage. And here's here's a selling point. Train them all to do it. And they're the ones that are going to go down.
1: Yeah, they turned a blind eye to it. It doesn't say how many people lost their jobs, but yeah, there's a whole bunch of fallout. But you know that like up at the higher levels of Amex, they all knew this was happening and they just tacitly allowed it to happen because it was making them tons and tons of money. It was working. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So shall we get into app news? Yeah, let
0: me uh, you, I have a transition story a, here we can get into. So the IRS... Yeah is planning on awarding $2.6 billion in app development contracts in Q1 of fiscal year 2023. 2.6 billion? 2.6 billion in app development. The Enterprise Development Operations Services, EDOS, contract will bring 400-plus systems in the IRS's Applications Development AD portfolio under one vehicle while enhancing the development, modernization, and enhancement DMV services and reducing the operation and
1: maintenance OM services. That was a lot of word uh, salad. Yeah, and it came I,
0: out of that legislation that said the IRS needs to modernize.
1: Okay, so, so how, how do I get it. a how do I get an IRS contract to build software for them?
0: So it, they have requirements to where it'll be bigger companies on small businesses participating in contractors. They, they're looking for people that have developing fraud detection tools, identifying tax fraud schemes, using network analytics, detecting tax-related ID theft. So I think like, they're really focusing on some of that stuff first. What's interesting about this it's a ceiling they say of 2.6 billion, but I just, based on some of our other stories we've covered, as these government agencies try to modernize, these contracts, that 2.6 billion is gone in the snap of an eye, and I, I suspect this will be a 15 billion dollar project before it's actually even done, mm. if it ever
1: gets done. Well, considering the IRS is still operating on like mainframe computers for some of their main databases, <laughs> right? So um. if
0: you're an app developer and you're like, hey, you know. I want to I get some of this government money. It's the way to go.
1: Go for it. Well, here's a throwback story that is app-related. Congress widens PPP fraud probe to more online financial companies. There's a congressional subcommittee that's been investigating fraud from the uh, PPP program. Representative James Clyburn, Democrat of South Carolina, he's the chairman of this subcommittee on the coronavirus crisis. He sent letters to Blue Acorn and Wompley on Tuesday, requesting information about fraud prevention. Both emerged as major players that fused tech and financing to speed up lending through the government's Paycheck Protection Program. Womply had no lending experience before COVID-19, and Blue Acorn did not exist. Yet together, the companies captured more than $3 billion in fees, eclipsing their direct competitors. So they made those fees on issuing the loans. But... Clyburn says, quote, unfortunately, many of these fees may have been earned by processing fraudulent or ineligible loan applications. So they're requesting all sorts of information.
0: This would make yeah, sense, Wamp- right? If if they had a billion dollars that they made of revenue all came from fraudulent applications, they probably need to give that billion dollars back. I think that's acceptable.
1: Wampley did 1.4 million loans, totaling more than $20 billion, And the total was about $800 billion. So they did quite a, a good chunk. Blue Acorn did $14 billion in loans.
0: And we talked about Blue Acorn before because yeah. they were powering a couple of the other services and they came out of nowhere in one year. They didn't even exist prior to PPV. They Basically, April of that year, they started as a company. It's bananas.
1: So the question is, who's to blame here? Is it Congress for creating a paycheck protection program that allowed for a lot of fraud because there weren't internal checks and controls? Is it the SBA for the way they implemented it? Or- is it you know these companies that created these uh these easy ways to get your ppp loan it's hard to lay blame on them when the the banks the traditional banks weren't loaning to people so they had no other option so if these fintechs hadn't cropped up then who would have loaned to these small businesses
0: and there's some perfect storm of the opportunity to create you could create a fraudulent bank account with bank routing numbers on cash app or something fake business licenses push it through mm-hmm. these loans, get the money, go to a fake bank account, take out the money. It's gone. You never existed. It's like it never happened. It's like the perfect storm of technology hit with the money. You're just bound to have fraud.
1: And, and there's no way that a human being could be reviewing all these applications. Like even if you, like, there, there's just not possible. There are just too many. It's going to be one of those situations where there's no bad guy. There's nobody in a room full of cigar smoke who set this up and stole the money. It's, I
0: suspect that these two smaller companies are going to take it hard. They'll get the blame. They'll get the blame. They're going to take, because they're going to have to make a scapegoat or an example from somebody and they're not going to do it from the big
1: banks. Yeah. The big banks have too much influence. So They're the ones donating money to Congress. What you got?
0: This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Relay Financial. Do your clients use banks that make it harder for you to close the books? Do they make it harder to deliver financial visibility for clients? I'm guessing you said yes to both these questions. And that's because traditional banks aren't designed for your relationships with your small business clients. Thankfully, Relay Financial is. Relay is FDIC-insured online banking that makes bookkeeping easy. You can access all your clients in a single portal, enjoy rich direct bank feeds to QuickBooks Online and Zero. Automate payables with multi-stage approvals and even spin up a new checking account for clients in seconds right from your browser. To join the thousands of accounting and bookkeeping firms that are standardizing their clients on relay, check out their partner program at cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash relay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash R-E-L-A-Y. App news. So there's a B2B spend management startup uh, out of Europe called Payhawk they just closed $112 million in their Series B. Um, and this is a company card spend management solution. We're seeing lots of these pop up everywhere. They operate currently across 27 countries in Europe. And now with this new round, they do plan on eyeballing the US, Netherlands, France, Australia, and Singapore.
1: Well, you brought up funding, so I'll share my story on the Australian side of things. SimPro has raised 350 million in new funding. That's wow. according to Reuters. Yeah, Which is the niches. What does Simpro do? It's
0: um HVAC field service software. HVAC. Specific... So I think they they have a good traction with like solar panel installers, but they yeah they are field service software.
1: Okay, field service management, end to end field service management. They've got job management, project management, asset maintenance, reporting features include estimating, quoting, scheduling and dispatch, invoicing and payments, then they've got their accounting integrations. Wow, $350 million. They didn't provide any details on their valuation in a statement seen by Reuters, but a person familiar with the deal said the latest round would value the company at more than a billion dollars. Well, yeah, I mean if they're raising 350 million, you'd hope that they're worth <laughs> at least a billion. They have 200,000 users across Australia, New Zealand, and the United States and the United Kingdom, and they employ 400 people globally. Simpro is the company that bought ClockShark. Did we talk about that? Did we report on that? I didn't know that they had bought Clock Shark. Maybe I, I didn't forgot know this either. This is in the same announcement. Simpro said it bought Clock Shark, a US based timesheet and scheduling platform, as well as Australia-based job management software provider ROFLO, A-R-O-F-L-O. Those three platforms altogether are used by more than 17,000 businesses and serve as 320,000 users. Do they mean by that that they have 17,000 businesses using all three? Interesting.
0: No, it's got to be total
1: together. Well, but SimPro says it has 200,000 users. Okay, yeah, no, these are total user counts. So 320,000 users across all three apps. Nice. Uh, The leadership teams of both ClockShark and AeroFlow, or is it AeroFlow or AeroFlow? I don't know. They're going to operate independently after the acquisition.
0: Good, good hidden uh, story in these details. I did not know Clock Shark was purchased by them.
1: Yeah, it was kind of buried in that. I didn't even notice until I uh, read that. I was Clock Shark's first Twitter follower.
0: <laughs> Just don't know.
1: You should get some equity for that. I,
0: so I did not, yeah, I, I completely missed this. Maybe they didn't tweet it out. I don't understand.
1: Here's an article, Six Lessons from Audit Experts Who Adopted AI Early. I've been wondering, when would... AI and tech, just any tech cloud, start to impact the auditor profession. We kind of almost forgotten about audit these days. So this is a story about a firm that has adopted MindBridge for their audits. The firm is called GRF CPAs and Advisors. They're featured in Journal of Accountancy. Ricardo Trujillo, he's a CPA, CITP. He's talking about in this article how they've adopted uh, MindBridge to add value to their audits. They're using MindBridge for 15% of their audits these days, and they tend to audit not-for-profits mostly. MindBridge, by the way, is a cloud-based platform that analyzes transactions and assigns a risk percentage based on 28 control points within the software. So you connect MindBridge to the general ledger, it pulls in the transactions and then analyzes them all. So the idea is instead of sampling a small set of transactions, you can sample them all, and then MindBridge will do a risk assessment. Now, what's interesting is they're not using MindBridge to reduce the time it takes to audit. They're using it as a value add. They're saying, if we use MindBridge, we can help detect fraud. For now, machine learning doesn't necessarily mean a faster or cheaper audit. Instead, they tell clients that it makes for a much more effective audit. It's an interesting way to position it. Do you use AI software to reduce the time it takes to do something? In bookkeeping and CAS, we've generally used technology to save time allows us to do more effective things. I think eventually that's what's going to happen with audit. But in this case, they're using it as a value add to the client. So we can do a better audit for you.
0: So Sage launched a new platform called their uh, Sage for Accountants. And what I found was interesting about this, essentially, it's going to be a dashboard in your digital hub for accountants to put all your clients on one dashboard across all your Sage products. Right. And this includes some of the new acquisitions. So GoProposal and AutoEntry. And as you march down, you read this article, it looks like this is a... – because right now, like AutoEntry has its own dashboard. And I suspect GoProposal has its own dashboard. Every single app, mm-hmm. right, has its own dashboard. Yep. And you the account or bookkeeper, it's a kind of a pain, right? Like, oh, it's time to work on my AutoEntry clients. I got to do the AutoEntry dashboard. They're going to really work to make this the starting point. So regardless of where you start using a Sage product, all accounts are going to be driven to this one dashboard for that product. So they'll, they'll That's share a dashboard smart stack of some type. So it's, it's pretty interesting. And then along with that, they actually have their Sage and hub, which is like advice, information, uh, learning topics, uh, marketing support, things like that. But there are, it's, it's interesting that they're not, this isn't beyond just a way to get to the Sage accounting products, but it's going to be all the products are on one dashboard, which is actually really smart. Um, we'll see. I, I can't imagine zero and into it. Don't head that way as well, especially into it with, The fifty-five thousand products now they own on the small business side
1: with more and more of us working remotely and looking like it's going to stay that way one of the questions is how do you build strong relationships with colleagues that seems to be one of the number one reasons that managers and business owners are asking people to come back to the office it's because the argument is we can't build good culture good relationships when we're on zoom there's some good news though for folks who like remote working According to a new survey, it is possible to build relationships with colleagues, strong relationships with colleagues remotely. You just have to work harder at it, and it takes longer. This story in the Wall Street Journal talks about this survey and gives you some tips, some strategies for how to build better relationships. The study was done by Slack, by the way, which of course has a Strong interest in helping folks work remotely. Although I feel like Slack is one of those tools that gets used everywhere, regardless of whether or not you're in the office or remote. Do you want to know some of these um, some of these tips? I'd love one them. of them. I'd love to hear. What's that? I would to love hear. to hear. This has okay. been a challenge of my own. Okay, so there are six tips. I'll just do a, like my my favorite ones. So this is the one that's counterintuitive to me: share sad experiences. People meeting others online for the first time may think they should present a positive self-image, but research by Anita Woolley, an associate professor of organizational behavior and theory at the Tepper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon University, indicates that virtual teams can improve their connection and performance by talking about personal sad experiences. In a study, Dr. Woolley and her co-authors divided 104 strangers into 52 pairs to work together over video conference. A control group was given six minutes for unstructured conversation. The remaining three groups of pairs were each given six minutes to ask and answer personal questions designed to evoke sad, calm, or neutral moods. After answering the questions, the pairs were given a series of online games that they had to work together to complete. The pairs who were given sad questions, such as, what is an important memory from your childhood that makes you feel sad, demonstrated more connection and performed better at the collaborative tasks than any of the other groups. The pairs that were allowed to chit-chat about anything felt happier, but didn't perform as well on the collaborative tasks. So the suggestion here is that remote workers should structure time to disclose meaningful things to one another, even if they're sad, and it makes you work better together. So this is counterintuitive. We all feel that we need to present this positive image, especially even more when working remotely, but that actually is not necessarily true. I guess it makes sense. People work best when they they feel connected to other people, and we all have challenges in our lives. We all have sad experiences as well as happy ones, and I guess when we share the the difficult ones, the sad ones, it makes us feel more connected to others. I can see that. Yeah. You want to one of the other five? (laughs) Well, the other ones are a little more standard. Let's see. See the full picture. So learn about your remote teammates' work and life context, understand their family, know who they're. Like this is stuff that it's you should typical, probably know. It's yeah,
0: like yeah. Dale Carnegie stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah. Post-frequent specific status updates. So share frequently and often. Have daily check-ins. So for example, if you're a manager, you could easily do like a daily stand-up and everyone would share what you worked on yesterday, what you're going to work on today, and what you need help with. You don't even need to do that on a call. You could actually do that virtually. If everyone does it every day, that can really help. Ask for and give help notice nonverbal cues. So if you are doing a lot of meetings and groups, get a big computer screen so that you can see everybody in their square. And they're not just this like little tiny icon that you can barely see. So the one I thought was interesting that I'd never thought about before, didn't realize was like, it's sharing the the sad experiences and actually figuring out how to, to make time for that is important. Of course, I can see a manager totally taking the wrong approach with that and then forcing everyone to share sad experiences about themselves and creating this really awkward meeting. <laughs> you know, sort of like the virtual equivalent of a trust fall and everyone just hates hates it. So Yeah, you, the, the, yeah.
0: the execution of this, I could see. <laughs> the
1: execution of it is important. So that, I think that's all the time we've got today, David. Uh, you want to share a sad story about yourself <laughs> sad story. before we go? <laughs> um, I'm going to take another business trip. I have to get off the
0: podcast here and pack and I'm going to New York where the temperature is like 40 degrees. So the sad story is like I have to carry a huge pu- poofy jacket. And I'm that guy because I don't know how to what to do with a big poofy jacket.
1: You got to take <laughs> it on the plane. Being in Arizona, yeah. right?
0: I don't know what to do with my big poofy jacket. It just sits in a closet. Yes, yeah, so I, I have to be that guy. I never know what to do with it at restaurants or sit down. What do you do with it on the plane? I just I don't know what to do with a big poofy jacket and gloves and scarves. It's just sad. I, I'm emotionally upset. I don't know.
1: I'm so, I'm very sad that you I'm sorry for you that you have to go to New York in uh in what is almost December, end of end of November. I think uh, but, the temperature is like see it goes team. from
0: thirty thirty the lows thirty and the high's like forty-one or something. It's gonna be yeah. a fun two days.
1: Well have enjoy yourself as much as you can. Uh I'll keep I'll keep Arizona warm for you until you get back. And in the meantime, if our listeners wanna tweet at you while you're on the plane or catch up with you in New York. If, if Well, you'll probably be back by the time this episode drops, right? But uh, where should they reach you?
0: I'm on all the socials, just at David Leary. And if you're on LinkedIn, just be sure to say I'm not a bot.
1: I am at Blake T. Oliver. You can email me at blake at blakeoliver.com. Send us a voice memo. We love hearing those. Send us your emails. Let us know your thoughts on these stories or anything else that is top of mind for you in the world of accounting and technology. Until next week, David, have a safe trip, and I'll see you back here next week. Bye. Time for the
0: classifieds. If you're looking to quickly grow a scalable, systematic, seven-figure accounting firm without having to work 50-plus hours per week, check out Ryan Lozanis' online coaching membership, Future Firm Accelerate. Sign around Ryan's experience taking his cloud firm from scratch to sale so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You'll get online learning and topics that help you automate and systemize all aspects of your firm. You'll get coaching when you need help with implementation. And you'll also join a collaborative community of hundreds of other forward-thinking firm owners. For more details, head over to www.futurefirmaccelerate.com.
1: Hey podcast listeners, it's Blake and I wanted to let you know about a new show I'm working on with CPA slash comedian Greg Kite and blogger slash former CPA Caleb Newquist. It's called Oh My Fraud and it's a podcast all about financial crimes. That's right, a true crime podcast for accountants by accountants. Caleb and Greg are going to come together every couple weeks to unpack their favorite frauds and explore the circumstances, psychology, and interpersonal dynamics involved. They also fully indulge in victim-blaming the defrauded widows, orphans, infirm, and feeble-minded because who can resist? If you fancy yourself a trusted advisor or prefer your true crime with spreadsheets instead of corpses, listen to this show to learn what to watch out for and to keep your clients, your firm, and even yourself safe. To subscribe, go to ohmyfraud.com or search Oh My Fraud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.